In a world filled with movies, it can be hard to choose just one to watch. What do you want to watch? I don't know. What do you want to watch? I don't know. What do you want to watch? I'm not deciding this. What do you want to watch? I asked first. Come on. What do you want to watch? No. What do you want to watch? What do you want to watch, Patrick? What do you Where even watch? narrowing down a you genre can be a struggle. How about we watch a drama? Too many emotions. Okay, then how about we watch an action film? Too many explosions. I know, I know. Let's watch a horror movie. Oh, uh, Dad, just do an interview already. Welcome, everybody, to the Diecast Movie Podcast, where this episode we have a special interview brought to you by my dad. Take it away, Dad. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast. This is Steve, and I'm joined with Mary, Mary Battle at here. We're together here at the Mid-Atlantic Nostalgia Convention, and she was the scout in To Kill a Mockingbird. You're also in The Twilight Zone, you know, and lots of other things. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think we're going to be focusing mostly on the, probably those two. How are you doing today at the convention? Oh, doing really well. We had so many people come. It was lovely. I was really worried because of the pandemic and the heat. But um, we had tons of people show up, and they all seemed to be having a good time. So that was really good. I think they are. And for, for listeners wondering, what she means the heat, we're in a convention where the air conditioning is not working in the building. And it was um, 85 degrees outside today, and they were using fans to circulate air around. So it is swampy, I think <laughs> yes. is the best word. <laughs> very, very moist I was today. <laughs> But thankfully, you're, I mean, I guess it's one way. You're used to this because you live in Virginia, and mm-hmm. so you're, uh, we live in Maryland, so we're used to this type of humidity and heat. Yeah, I live on a farm, and my house doesn't have air conditioning except for in the bedroom. So <laughs> It's always good to have it for a good night's sleep. My, um, yes. my in-laws, they only have air conditioning in their bedrooms, and yeah. they've been that way forever. So it's you go over to their house, you just get used to it. Yeah, it's... You know, and I like to work outside. I love to garden. And if I had air conditioning like most people, I would never go outside because the differential is so much. Whereas this way, it's a little cooler in the house, but not so much that I don't want to go out. But usually I'm up by 5 and out in the garden by 6.30 whenever it gets light enough to see what I'm doing. (laughs) And sometimes by 8 o'clock, it's just too hot to stay out. So. So what are some of the things you like the garden, you know, since you brought it up? I have uh, a perennial garden. I love roses. I have roses. And um, then we're on a working farm. We, we raise uh, corn and soybeans mostly. So we let all the livestock go because we're just getting too old to deal with all that. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I know our, my father-in-law, Ben, helps him out a lot. Um, He's had steers, um, does does planting and all this other stuff. Not as much now. He's getting older, so he's starting to cut back on this stuff. And Ben's been helping him out a lot with getting that done. So it's it's something nice when you actually get to grow something and eat what you've put, you know, basically put that love and attention to. Yeah, that's I, – I really – one year I want to do a real garden. I've been puttering with vegetable garden, but – this year, I had two squash plants and a zucchini plant. I thought, oh, that's great because that'll be enough because they're so prolific. Went away for the weekend, came back, and the bugs had just devoured everything. I was so <laughs> mad because I don't use chemicals. So. 
Yeah, we don't use chemicals. He doesn't use chemicals at all. Yeah, I was double checking with Ben, who's with us. He's um, listening in, and um, he doesn't use any chemicals. We have problems with is the critters. Oh, the yes. bunnies, the deer, the deer. and the groundhogs. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah, my poor magnolia trees coming up the drive. They um, suffered dearly from the deer. I had to fence them off to try and keep the deer off my trees because the young ones they'll just. They go over them like to scratch their bellies or whatever, and then they break them off, which at the price of trees now, it's kind of hard. Yeah, over at our house, we had gotten some fruit trees a couple years ago to try out, and uh, the deers literally just snapped all the apple ones in half, mm -hmm. trying to scratch their horns and all on them. Yeah. And it was like just wasting all the time and money on the trees. I know. It's so frustrating. But I, I found that if you take like um, the sheep fence and put that around it and it just like go two feet off of the main trunk and just put like one post in there or two, just to stabilize it a little bit, then they kind of get the idea. So, because I don't like I don't like using chemicals. Sometimes I have to resort to chemicals, but <laughs> I'd rather not. Yeah, we're the same way. I'm, I know he is. It's a last resort, but it's nicer when you know everything has not been chemicaled and all the other stuff, and then you're eating it. It's I think anybody that it's it's a great organic food. Mm -hmm. And again, it, when you grow it. You appreciate it more. I mean, that tomato is always going to be so oh. much better when you grow it yourself. And it's the thing is, I really believe in that old adage: "We are what we eat." And I think a lot of heart problems and health problems strictly come from our food because um, processed food—you have no idea what's gone into that, where it's come from, all the different parts to it, and it's it's scary um, eating processed food and when I'm on the road you know I'm really bad about packing all the time fresh fruits and vegetables to where I can snack sometimes I forget and I end up at some wonderful restaurants <laughs> <laughs> on the way <laughs> not exactly healthy I'm pretty much addicted to Bojangle biscuits so. <laughs> Well, if you're only having it once every great so often, I don't yeah. think it's going to be a big problem. I mean, right. everything everything in a moderation. Moderation, exactly. And then you'll be <laughs> fine. Um, I'm curious, how did you get your start in acting? Well, um, my mother was an actress, and she had her own radio show. It was called An Hour with Mary Badham, and she would talk about um, interesting events that were going on in the city, uh, and she was also the leading lady at the Town and Gown Theater for a number of years. And she did opera and all kinds of stuff. And she had a beautiful British accent because she was from England. And um, her theater manager uh, called and said, the movie people are coming for this film and they need children and why don't you bring little Mary in? And my mother said, well, I'll have to ask Henry, my father. And uh, so she did. Daddy said no. <laughs> 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 but my mom was so sharp. She was like, 
Now, Henry, dear, what are the chances the child will get the part anyway? (laughs) (laughs) So there you go. And there I went and off to California. And well, first I went to New York for a screen test and passed that hurdle and then got sent on to California. And we started filming. And five months later, you know, we were like a family. It's in front of the camera and behind the camera. Those guys took such good care of me. I was treated like a little princess. It was wonderful. I mean, they really made the film like playtime. So we had a great time. I was saying, it's one of my favorite films of all time. And to great, great, you're cast perfectly in it as Scout. I mean, when they found you, they found Scout. <laughs> Thank uh, you. <laughs> and Gregory Peck, I mean, I think, what is it? Um, when AFI did their top 100 heroes if i remember correctly he was number one yes he was number one and i think what it is is gregory peck the man you see up on the screen is who he is um he is an atticus and he really um he picked especially later on once he got the chance to pick and choose roles then he picked roles that meant something, that made a statement. Um, he had a, a strong democratic leaning and uh, believed in the rights of women and people and in general and had a real strong belief in our government and our country and wanted to see it stay strong and be a better country um, by being inclusive. Um, he was uh, very much uh, what, what you would have to say colorblind. Mm-hmm. It was the person inside, and that's the way we were raised. I mean, it just, um, you respected everybody until they gave you a reason not to. Black, white, purple with green spots, it didn't matter. Uh, you know, you, you judged a person by their actions. Um, and we always tried to live up to, or at least I did, to Atticus and his expectations, my father, who I lost when I was a little kid. Mm. So, um, you know, that's, that's kind of hard. And I had brothers that had all, well, my brother John, he was a genius and <laughs> ended up, <laughs> you know, he went from the mail room to the top of the tower in like no time. Uh, he was amazing. Um, but they very much uh, worked very, very hard to make Daddy proud and to carry the family name well. And they accomplished it, I think. Now, I'll say with his portrayal, the fact that he was so understanding and so showing about how not to respond but i always remember the scene where the one gentleman tried to get him to fight back and spat in his face and he realized the example he was setting for his children and he did not retaliate even though that was the guy was begging him to like setting them all up wanted the punch and did not fall for debate and that is such a courageous moment. And it's such a great lesson for people today. People are just ready to tear people apart over nothing. I mean, I had, it, talk about road rage. I, the people nowadays get on the road and they have no idea 
you know, they're getting all upset when I'm doing the speed limit or maybe just a little bit over and they're wanting to do 80 miles an hour. It's like, guy, I'm in the right. Don't be yelling at me and being ugly. You know, it's not my problem that you're late. <laughs> so. Oh, I know. And, and and also I think with social media nowadays and so many oh, people get terrible. upset with it, it, this movie is so timeless. And we talked about other movies like Inherit the Wind and other things where it's still the message for movies that came out like in 1960 area yeah. era are still so important nowadays. Mm-hmm. And this, this, both these movies are timeless and sadly their messages still have to be learned by so many people. Yes, they do. I mean, th- that's what keeps me on the road to high schools, colleges, and universities is because um, it's, Mockingbird is a great teaching tool. It, and it's got a really strong moral base. I mean, Miss Nell was a good, solid Methodist woman. And she worked tirelessly um, to portray life the way that we knew it. I mean, when I grew up, um, I can remember... Well, even later, when, after I was married and we came to Virginia to the farm, uh, we went to the little local Methodist church. Now I'm a Presbyterian, but that doesn't really matter because I'm pretty ecumenical. <laughs> my girlfriends are both Catholic, and I used to go to Catholic Mass. So, But um, my neighbors that used to own the farm were Methodists, and they invited us to church, which we did. We enjoyed it. And... It was one of the hardest working churches I've ever seen. I mean, if somebody was ill, people would show up at their house, and if their lawn needed cut, it would get cut. If their kids needed to go to school, they were meals were fixed, and, and the kids were gotten off to school. And if somebody was in the hospital, they were right there, you know, to make sure stuff got done. The best example I can give to you is that um, I lost my second daughter, Catherine, seven months in utero. And um, Gus, our minister uh, at the Methodist Church, beat me to the hospital. I had called him and told him what happened. I said, the baby didn't make it, and I'm going in to have it. Could you come to the hospital? So he did. And we had a little um, memorial, and the nurses and doctors came in, and uh, we had a little prayer service. When I got home, my parents-in-law had driven down from Pennsylvania all the way to Virginia. The ladies had come in. They had cleaned my house. They made the beds. They had a full—this was Thanksgiving Day. They had full Thanksgiving dinner on the table. It was amazing. And for days after that, they made sure we had everything we needed. I mean, to me, that's what we ought to be. That's what church is. Um, To say you're a Christian just because you go to church every week, that doesn't mean anything. When When it counts is when the rubber hits the road and somebody's in trouble and you're there for them. I, I think that was one of the most beautiful representations of a Christian family that I've ever had. And Gus and Mary Wright were just over the moon for me. 
I mean, they were just wonderful, wonderful people and such a great minister. And he was this country guy who, you know, was just, he was so in touch and so there for every single person in that church. I had um, a similar thing with my parents when my mom had me, I'm the youngest, and we were up in a little town in Edinburgh. Uh-huh. And um, they told me that my dad, every morning he would wake up and there'd be a breakfast hot, but he never saw anybody. Somehow they always had a hot breakfast waiting for him. He knew, I guess, they, I guess they knew his routine and it'd be there. They'd had the meal, like every time, like the meals, because he was, you know, going back and forward and that kind of stuff. And it's just amazing how people in the community. Yes would help each other and there's still a lot of people that do that mm-hmm. but it seems it seems to be for whatever reason people are, are more insular instead yes. of being instead of being in that communal sense and helping other people out and that's right. i think you're exactly right that's you and i both i didn't experience it myself because i was a newborn but you know it's just amazing how um people had that stand up and help everybody out and i think more yeah. people should do that I, I think so, too, and I think more churches need to, you know, take a look at what are we doing. It's one thing to get up there and preach a sermon on Sunday morning. It's something else, you know, to to get out there and have your people meet together. We ladies of the church used to meet, and we had we knew who was sick, who was had a baby due, Um, you know, when the kids were going back to school, who needed what supplies. I mean, some people don't like that one-on-one, you know, Mm -hmm. with people, and they don't want that intrusion, so they call it. Um, But I'm telling you, when the chips are down, having all those hands, lots of hands make short work. (laughs) That's one of the old country sayings, and it's true. It is true, and then... because you know these same people are going to help you and then it builds yeah. it builds up and then everybody is just and, and and you don't need to re, you know nobody has to say thank you or whatever you just no. know yeah you helped them they know you helped them and it's just and everybody now seems to look at their facebook accounts and other accounts and how many likes did i get oh, I know. and these are people nothing. you don't even know no you <laughs> don't know these people and like we had um an elderly black man who, who lived in the neighborhood everybody knows him and um, he lives very near, within a few blocks of our church, the Presbyterian church that I was supposed to be going to. <laughs> <laughs> and I was on the Presbytery, women's Presbytery. And um, so I went to this man and I said, because I, I was working uh, next door to his house and I said so which church do you go to because the black churches are very caring and very you know they really reach out and he said I don't know they're they're not doing anything so I went to the ladies of the church and I said look we here we go to Mexico and rebuild houses we go to you know all these places and do all this wonderful work and here we've got somebody right in our own backyard who desperately needs help he has nothing he has no money he has no house now because it's burned to the ground so what can we do and 
to make a long story short, we ended up rebuilding his house. And it was brilliant. And we tied, we made, uh, uh, joined forces with, uh, what's the President Carter's group? Oh, oh. Habit, is it Habitat, Habitat for, for Humanity. Humanity. Yes. And between our, our guys and those, we had busloads of children come out from Richmond out into the country just to clean up and get everything torn down and thrown away and everything. Um, and when I saw those kids drive up and the guys pulled out rakes out of the back of the pickup truck, I was just cheering. It was like, this is so great, you know? Oh, I know. I've done community service where I've helped at an HIV center and I've helped at soup kitchens uh -huh. and those kind of things. I know what it's like to go and it's it's so rewarding you just go there and I know the food's different now but I remember we used to get food from restaurants that was no longer usable so we'd have mm -hmm. to clip off the um, rotted parts of beans we'd have to pull off the the, the, the slimy part of lettuce yeah. and and, it, and everybody that came was just so happy at his meal and you know and it's just one of those things I know nowadays we'd all be like oh this throw that away but it's just it can be when you're used. waste not want not it's another old term that I use because um, that's that's the way to when you don't have I think the problem with America is we have so much that we're spoiled uh, a lot of us but there are some desperately poor people in this country and we have people that are being thrown out on the street as we speak right this minute there are people and children I mean I am horrified at the families I'm seeing uh, being, you know, evicted from their homes. Um, and I, the politicians, I don't know what we're going to do. We've got to get some of these people out of government that are not allowing America to be America. They are, you know, the good old boys system that literally has been there forever that just wants to you know, line their own pockets, and that's that's wrong. <laughs> it's just flat wrong. Oh, I agree, and it's just it's just sad, you know, and that kind of stuff. Hello, everybody, and um, I know this is kind of interesting. You just were hearing us talk at the Mid Atlantic Nostalgic Convention, and now we're picking up over the phone just to give you a little background of what happened. <laughs> um, um, Miss Badlam had to go to a Q&A um, at the Mid-Atlantic Nostalgia Convention, and we were going to pick up afterwards, but when she was done that, she was understandably tired. It had been a really long day in a hot, humid environment, and um, so we were going to pick up the next day, and uh, sheer, you talk about one thing happening after another. She lost her voice during the, the middle of the convention, so she had this day where all these people were coming up, and she couldn't talk. And so to make a long story short, we're picking this up a couple of weeks after the convention because now you've fully recovered. And what did you think of the convention besides you losing your voice? I, I thought it was really amazing and, and did very well uh, considering we had no AC and uh, one day we had rain. So um, I was thrilled with the turnout, and it, it was a fun time. They had a lot of fun people at the convention. 
and your table is one of those tables that, that constantly had people there. And I, I can't imagine on um, Friday to middle day, how, how you were able to communicate. Cause you and I were, I would talk to you and I gave you a notepad and you'd write me the answers back. So I don't know how you <laughs> handled it. Well, luckily I had the, the convention people had given me somebody who was seated at the table and she was my voice, which was great. I mean, once you hear, you know, the same questions over and over again, it's pretty, pretty easy to pick up on what the answers are. So, and if something came up, I just write it down that she didn't know. So it, that was so helpful. I, I couldn't have done it uh, without that. So. It worked out fine. And, of course, the next day your voice came back in, in some more of a semblance, and, uh, but it was, it, was, it, was, it was a long weekend for you, but in, in a good yeah. way. <laughs> yeah. It was a lot of fun. So, listeners, if you hear us repeat anything that we talked about before, you know, it, it's been a few weeks, and, um, you know, some, so there might be a little bit of repetition. We're, I apologize for that, but I'm just, instead of editing it out, I'm just going to, if we repeat something, just going to let it flow, and hopefully people will understand. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about, and I learned this during your Q&A session, is um, you, you talked a little bit about your dad and about how your mom got permission to try to get permission from your dad to do the movie. And he said, no. And then she tricked him a little bit and you ended up getting the role, but you never really told us much about your dad and your dad is basically uh, like a John Wayne type person in real life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Only he was only about five foot two, but he was a, a general in the air force and, um, he started off in the cavalry, uh, riding the lead caisson horse uh, on pulling the big guns uh, down in Arizona. Uh, they had a contingent of soldiers guarding the border. This is after Pancho Villa was down there terrorizing everybody. And uh, so they sent this group of soldiers down there to guard the border, and then he heard they were flying in France, so he took a, a boat to France and learned to fly, and within about three weeks was teaching other guys to fly, and uh, he had the longest live rate, which means he could get them up and bring them down, uh, then even some of the oldest instructors who were there in France at the time and this is back when they had the old biplanes, and uh, it was uh, they were pretty pretty flimsy affairs. Uh, and then he went on for World War One, World War Two, Korea, and was an advisor on Vietnam. And he was also president and chairman of the board of uh, Bessemer Coal Iron and Land Company. Um, helped take his parents through uh, the depression and all of that. It's, uh, you know, they, he, he saw so much to go from riding horses and, and being in carriages to flying jets. I mean, he <laughs> was amazing human being, absolutely amazing and sweet. He was just, a lovely, funny guy, and he loved to laugh, and uh, that's why I think 
uh, Atticus reminded me so much of my dad. Uh, and after daddy died, uh, Atticus really picked up the mantle and, and was really great about calling me on the phone and checking on me. And it was, it was really, really good. So, And, and that answers a question I was going to ask you. And you always called Gregory Peck Atticus, like that, he was your Atticus. And obviously the way you're talking, which you're talking about Gregory Peck calling you and checking on you, but so you yeah. always referred to him as Atticus, even all these I years did. after the movie? Yeah, because I certainly wasn't going to call him Gregory at 10 years old. Come on. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I'm sure in the early days it was Mr. Peck, uh, but he just, he became Atticus. I mean, we were together five months and, uh, that, that friendship, that bond, that father daughter type bond continued my whole life, uh, for his whole life. Cause I, I lost my parents so early. My mom died three weeks after I graduated from high school and daddy died two years after I got married. Uh, and I, I didn't get married till I was 21, but even 21 was very, very young back then. That having Veronique and, and Atticus take over um, part of that role was so helpful. I mean, you wouldn't believe uh, when you're living in a trailer in the middle of a field in Lochapoca, Alabama, trying to make two pennies work to do stuff. It just uh, makes makes your day um to know that he cared enough to call and check on me and see how things were going so yeah it was it was really great and that just kind of for me matches the image i always had with gregory peck of being this person who cared so much about the people he worked with and other people and you know, really making sure everybody's, you know, doing well. I mean, he didn't have to do any of that, but obviously he chose to, and, uh, and he must've really cared about you. And I'm sure a lot of other people too, but it, you guys had that bond at an early age. Yeah, for it, you. it was great because I mean, he would send me a plane ticket and, you know, he'd say, I'm going to be in such and such a place. Um, can you come? And, or he'd send a driver to come pick me up if he was nearby. If I was in California, I'd go over to the house and we'd have lunch together or dinner with family. And it was so nice. And his daughter, Cecilia, and I are still very tight. And when I go out to California, I usually stay at her house. And it's, it's so nice um, having that friendship continue. It sounds Cecilia like is just lovely. She's just um, such such a dear soul, like her daddy. So um, it's been very very good um, through the years. I mean, because Gregory Peck, as you and I, I alluded to earlier, if I remember right, um, to me is one of the the ten great actors, you know, um, that that are out there that in history and movies, and but also just such a human, you know, because I I remember seeing a footage of him speaking in public and that kind of stuff where he was doing like a one man Q and a thing where he'd go touring around and thankfully people recorded this and then to hear him talk and to hear what he, what, how he thought about different things. It's just, it's just amazing. Yeah. He was, he was a very big humanitarian and he 
really cared about um, our planet. You know, he loved to to have a really nice garden, and it just he he was just a, a really intelligent human being as well. He read a lot, uh, and when he would have roles, he would do deep studies into. Uh, like with MacArthur and everything, he studied the way he walked. He studied the way he he did things, and you know, little little ways that he spoke, and that um, he would do deep research into the characters that he played when they were based on real people. Now, when you were filming To Kill a Mockingbird, I remember you said it was like a, I think the word you it was like playtime. Yeah, it was. I mean, we were little kids, and it was just great because we got to live in our imagination, and that's where I lived most of the time when I was growing up. I had brothers, but they were all older and lived elsewhere except for my brother Tommy uh, and my brother John. John was away at school, and then Tommy was away at school, so I was kind of there by myself and, and lived in my imagination. Now, and if, I think that's what helped me get the role because I, they were looking for real children uh, with, with real imagination. Uh, they didn't want actors, uh, and they wanted the the accents to be real and all of that. Yeah, because because you had, if I remember correct from you saying before, no acting experience. Basically, you were learning as you were doing this movie. Oh yeah. I mean, it, it was, it, I had no zero experience. I, and I, I didn't want to be an actor. That wasn't my thing. I mean, I didn't know what I wanted to be at nine, 10 years old. I had no clue. Um, as I got older, you know, it was, it was a different story. I, I had seen the good side of, of, being an actor and I'd seen the rough side of being an actor. Every role that I got, I figured after that I would never be doing anything ever again. I was really shocked when anything else came up. And when I got to high school, I think it was that I realized that I wanted to be a large animal veterinarian uh, specializing in equine. Uh, horses, for those who aren't familiar with the term. And uh, so when my horse came down with navicular disease, um, I took it to the vet school over at Auburn University mm-hmm. and donated him so that they could study the disease and hopefully find a cure for it. And I thought, well, while I'm there, I'll go and talk to the, the dean and see what I have to do to get into school. And in those days, uh, he said, you women come in here and take all my best students, uh, and your grades aren't good enough Good day, young lady. And that was it. After that, I had no clue what I wanted to do. And when I did get to university, I thought, well, I'll go in the animal science department, start there, and then transfer. Well, no, that was impossible because the uh, animal science department was in the ag department and um, the vet school wouldn't look at Aggies. Uh, They didn't want to have anything to do with them. I ended up not being able to go to vet school, bottom line. (laughs) But those 
we've come a long way since then. I mean, if you look at vet schools now, uh, a large majority of the kids who go to vet school are female. Mm-hmm. And the last old pony that I had that I had to have put down uh, when I call the vet, um, she gets out of the truck and she's like pregnant, and I'm talking mega pregnant and I'm like wait when are you due and she goes anytime now and I told her I said look I don't know nothing about busting no baby so do not pop this kid while you're here you know she goes no no I'll be fine she ended up giving birth like two days later I was terrified she was going to do it right here on the farm I can handle pigs, I can handle sheep, goats, but a human baby, that's a totally different ballgame. <laughs> there would have been a film, you know, as soon as she said, oh, I'm fine, you know, it would have been like, oh, it's coming. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God, when she squats down to get this pony <laughs> and check on it, oh, please, no. <laughs> But all went well. She left, and I was like, Phew. <sighs> okay. <laughs> She's off the property. I'm safe now. <laughs> She's off the property. I'm safe now. Right? <laughs> oh, that was <laughs> it's hard to follow that up. But with Robert Mulligan directing you, how did he go about? Because obviously he knows you had no experience. He knows you're a child actor. And how did he go about getting you acclimated to the um, the movie set he you know bob mulligan was one of the greatest directors we ever had it's a shame that hollywood rejected him because he well i don't know if they rejected him but they gave him a real hard time uh is my understanding and um he was so great because he had small children at that time so he knew how to talk to them And instead of talking down to us, he would squat down next to us and get eye to eye. And he would say, okay, the camera's going to be here and you're going to be over there. And I need you to move. And he would basically just give me the blocking and not so much tell me what to do or how to do it. But he would say like, um, you know, watch, and you can see where the camera is, make sure we can see your face or whatever. And so basically that's what he would do. And he would let us do the scene. And then if he needed to tweak it, he would tweak it. Okay. We need to do this again. Um, This time, watch this movement or whatever, you know, or, you know, little things like that that just gave us the freedom to be, to make it our thing, to do it like a kid would do it, not like an adult would do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so most of his, most of his direction was given with blocking in mind. It, it and and he just made it like playtime. I mean, he really kept the scene, the, the set very light and airy, and you know it was business. Uh, that was that was clear. But it was I never heard any foul language. I never heard any uh, upset 
I never heard anything other than good people behind and in front of the camera. They were just, we just had a, a really great set and, and lots of fun. And we started on the outside and did the exteriors first. And then they had a sound stage where we had the interiors all except for the back of Boo's house. That was over on a different sound stage. It, the, the crew was just amazing. They were, they were so much fun. And, and all the guys were understanding what this film was about and understanding that we needed to make this the very best picture we could because nobody wanted to do this film uh, at the studios. I mean, nobody wanted to touch this film. Really? Um, oh, yeah. Alan Pakula and Bob Mulligan took this book around to all the major studios, and they're like, look, we want to do this film. And, and they were like, well, what is it about? And, you know, there was no romance there was no you know real violence other than off scene and so they didn't get it and they finally they sent the book to Gregory Peck and he uh, read the book and he said he could not wait until eight o'clock the next morning where he could call them and say if you want me I'll do it and uh so once he got behind it, he got into Universal Studios and was like, "We're doing this." And he put his—I mean, he put his money literally where his mouth was behind this film uh, to make it happen because they didn't want to give us a budget. So I mean, these guys put their heart, soul, and and hard-earned bucks behind this thing to make it happen, and and. Five months is a long time to be in production. I mean, that that's a very long time, very expensive. Uh, you figure all those guys behind the lights, it's not like today. Back then, every light had a, you know, had to be set, uh, sound had to be set, and you had numbers of people that worked with that. And to do the the sets themselves, um, that all had to be done. So there were a lot of man hours um, to make all this happen. And I think they did an incredible job. I think it's, it's well, it's, it's stood the test of time all these years. And I just got a text this morning that it's going to be on TCM tonight. <laughs> so. it, it's one of those films, like, like you said, that stands the test of time. <laughs> Excuse mm-hmm. me. Stands at the time, and as we talked about earlier, Atticus is the was a um, AFI's number one hero character yeah. for obvious reasons. Right. What was it like working with Estelle Evans? I didn't have a whole lot of scenes with her, but she was lovely, and she was such an incredible human being. And I didn't find this down until afterwards when I met her sister. Um, and because we lost her very early after the, she was one of the first cast members to pass away after we made the film, she died of cancer Mm. and she was the matriarch of her family. I mean, any problems in the family, they went to her 
any major dinners, birthdays, all that stuff happened at her house. When she passed away, her sister had to pick up where she left off, and she said she was not of the same character as her sister, and it was very difficult for her. But she, you know, tried her best, but she said she was such an understanding human being, and if any of the kids had a problem, they knew that they could go to her and talk to her, and she would tell them straight. She was a fabulous cook, evidently, and and just a wonderful human being. I wish that I had got to know her better, but we just had so few scenes together. You know, a lot of times with filming, it's like with Bob Duval. Um, I think we only shot, I think I had like two days maybe with him. Mm-hmm. And that was it. So we really didn't get to know each other. And the other wonderful thing about Bob Mulligan as the director, he never let us see anybody out of character and out of costume until after we were totally, totally done shooting with that person. And sometimes people would have to, you know, go to a different project. So they were, you know, signed for multiple gigs. So they would have to leave. Um, and, and we wouldn't see him again, you know, that, that kind of thing, people don't really understand about making a film. It's not like if you even have a small part, you stay and hang around, you, you leave once you're done. Oh, exactly. Uh, Because Robert Duvall's character, Boo, is is only in the film a very short period of time. So I figured he was probably only on filming for just a a couple of days or a few days. Anyway, for just anybody to be with him. Exactly. Exactly. So, like, we did the the bedroom scene, the the hey boo scene, and then the, the porch scene and the walking down the street. That was maybe, maybe it was three. Two days and one night, I think, because all those scenes at night, we did those at night, and they had to go to court to get special permission for me to do those scenes and to work at night. So that's another interesting aspect of working with children. You've got a social welfare worker. Mine was Mrs. Grokey, and we had a schoolroom out back. So when I wasn't in front of the camera, I was in school. Uh, and if once, once Mr. Mulligan called cut, if they were done, I had to leave and go back to the schoolroom. And when we did the filming at night, that was like overtime for Ms. Brokey. She had to come at night and be there to observe. And, and what their job is, is not just schooling, it's to monitor the children while they're being used in front of the camera and they're only allowed to work us so many hours. So she would make sure that those hours were observed. And no matter what production I was on, I mean, she was with me with everything that I did, Hmm. which is rare. I mean, that was so nice. And it was because the consistency was great. A lot of kids don't get that. And not every social welfare worker was as good as Ms. Grokey was. She was a hard taskmaster and she was, but she had a good heart. She was very kind. 
and she worked very hard with me. But if I wasn't in that schoolroom, as soon as they called cut, if I wasn't there within a few minutes, she was coming to look at me to see where I was. And they have the power to shut down a film. Literally, they can say, I'm taking this child out of here. This is it. And um, it came very close to that one time with uh, this property is condemned. We had been uh, shooting in uh, Biloxi, Mississippi and uh, Bay St. Louis. And when we got back uh, to Paramount, we were shooting all the indoor stuff. And they couldn't find Natalie's stand-in to do lighting on back then. They, you know, you, you had to stand there. You had a, a stand-in who would literally, they would do the lighting on and all that and sound checks and mm-hmm. things. And um, they couldn't find that stand-in. And I was right there. Well, Nat and I were like the same size and height. So I said, well, you know, I'm here. I'll, I'll jump up there and you can light on me. So I jumped up. Well, Miss Brokey came out and saw what was going on. She had a fit. She grabbed me by the hand <laughs> and took me right off that porch. She's like, you don't ever do that. Never do that. They have people that do that. You're supposed to be in school. Yes, ma'am. Okay. <laughs> no. So, uh that was, I think, one of the only times she I ever saw her temper come to four. And, and she turned to those guys, and she's like, and you guys know better than that. <laughs> so that was quite a to-do, not to mention the fact that somebody let fly with some language, and, and I was still present. Uh, and and that, she, she threatened to shut them down, literally. Uh, she was going to take them to court. And uh, luckily, everything got smoothed out because by that point, the studio had so much money into the production already, and they'd had so many delays and problems. So they were, it it was a tough shoot. I mean, I had a lot of growing up to do on that shoot because uh, I had never been exposed to that kind of pressure and that kind of tension that we had because they were literally writing the script as we're filming it it just boggles the mind um i would be finishing the day and get in the car to go back to the hotel and through the page through the window would come pages please have this adam have these ready by the next day and then somebody would sometimes come and knock on the door at eight o'clock at night i'm already in bed mm-hmm uh, you know, trying to get ready for the next day uh, so that I can function. And they're giving me more pages. You know, please have Miss Batum have these ready by 8 o'clock in the morning. Well, she's in bed already. Forget it. <laughs> Seriously. I had never, ever been on any production like that in my life. I was a real eye-opener. Uh you know, it it just, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. It, it was not a fun production. <laughs> I did not have a good time on that one. And that one you worked, that one, Natalie Wood, I think she left the set or left the, you yeah, left the, um, the, for a she while. Left the country. Left the country. 
left the country at one point. I could not believe she got on some airplane with some prince or other and was missing in action. And so we're ready to do this scene. And, the, you know, the set's all lit, sounds all ready. We're all in costume, everything's ready, and no nap. And I'm like, seriously, this is just, you know, and I'm looking at the fact that I've got to go home because I'm being, I'm expected at school, back in school. Um, so, you know, I'm totally ready for all this to be over. Yeah. So I said, because Bob and I were sitting in the kitchen, and I said, well, what about it? if we do the kitchen scene, I mean, because Bob and I had this scene in the kitchen. Um, and for listeners to know, can you tell people who Bob, who you're referring to? Bob, <laughs> uh, oh God, why did I do that? Robert Redford. Say. Robert Redford. Yes. <laughs> um, sorry. I had a senior moment. It's there. okay. I was, I was just like people, people hearing Bob and of course we dropped a lot of different bobs for different people, and I figured, you know, people oh, that's not, true. Yeah. with Robert, yeah. you, you worked with Robert Redford, and I'm just saying, Robert not, Redford. not many people get to work with Gregory Peck and Robert Redford. <laughs> right. So, anyway, we, um, I said, I, I, he said, well, are you ready to do that? And I said, yeah. And, and Bob said, he looked at Bob, uh, uh, Robert Redford, and he says, oh, yeah. He said, well, you guys go to makeup and costume. And uh, we'll switch the set over because it was set up like a, a house kind of thing where you move from the entry hall living room into the kitchen. So they got it all set up and we were able to save the day, literally, because otherwise they would have had to let everybody go. And it's thousands of dollars every minute you're not filming. I mean, whether you're filming or not, it's you've got to pay all these people that are standing around. Mm -hmm. uh, and being back in Los Angeles by that point, you know the tower is going. You know, are you guys? Where, when are you going to be? When are you going to wrap? <laughs> are you done yet? It was it was kind of crazy. Um, it was very crazy. So luckily, um, she showed back up to work. I guess the next day, um, but it, you. I, there was so much stuff on that that I just felt was so, to be blunt, unprofessional. Mm -hmm. You know, I just don't, I don't like that sort of thing. Um, I don't think anybody does. I think it's hard on the whole crew um, to have that sort of stuff going on. So it's, you know, it, it's a business and I, my father brought me up in business. So that that kind of stuff just you know occasionally to have it happen have something happen an emergency that's one thing but to have all the stuff that went on in that film when we were making it no it was it was not fun for anybody i don't think but to look at the good side of it i think um you didn't have any problems with robert redford at all and from oh, no. If it had not been for Bobby Blake um, and and Robert Redford, I don't think I would have made it through because there were days it was so hot and I was so tired and things were so screwed up with the script that 
you know, sometimes it's, it's not so much that I remember what they said to me, but it would be like, you know, an elbow to an elbow, you know, good go kid or, you know, well done or something like that, you know, that they would say or, or just a look even that where you knew or a wink, you know, that where you know, okay, it's, it's okay. You know, I did this okay job. So they really, really helped me a lot. And, and Bobby Blake, you know, had been a child actor. Um, he, he's been in the business forever. So he totally understood the stresses I was under. And, and Robert Redford was new to the industry, but he, he could see what was going on. So their support for me was amazing. They, they really did help me a lot. And um, I don't know, do you have any memories of Charles Bronson? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was Charles Bronson, oh my God. <laughs> we had like the trailers that we would stay in, you know, when you're not in front of the camera, you have like a little trailer. And we were sort of in a semicircle under the trees where we'd have some shade. And it was kind of roped off so that the only people who were, and we had a guard there to keep just anybody from walking up. And Charles Bronson would be out there, like, with his shirt off and his tan little body. Well, not a little, he was they got doing poses, you know, <laughs> doing arm stuff, you know, exercises and all this stuff. Oh, it was just, for me as a little kid, it was very embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he thought he was the cat's meow <laughs> or whatever you want to say. <laughs> I just found it just embarrassing, the whole thing. So, I, I, I was like, when you look at it, <clears throat> the, the credits, and it's like, it's one of the few movies I know of where Robert Redford is not the lead build. It's Natalie Wood's movie, and I think you know, her yeah. um, lack of professionalism, just to, like, to leave without telling anybody, I mean, that's just, uh, for what I don't know what was her reasoning or whatever, but it was, that's a but sad thing. Was- yeah, I think you'd have to look for people who know, who studied her, would probably know what was going on. I know her personal life at that point was pretty much of a wreck. That's about all I know, that she was she was having a lot of a hard time. And I, I haven't looked at her life to know what, you know, to, during that time period, uh, probably you know, some of your listeners would, would know what was going on with her personally at that point in time. But but she was definitely uh, a little squirrely. So it, it, it made it really difficult. Uh, but she was on point when we had scenes together. She was on point and, and um, got the job done very nicely. And I have to, I have to say, she was a trooper because anybody who does know about Natalie Wood, she was terrified of water. Mm-hmm. I mean, mortally terrified of water. Uh, she, she always, I just feeling that she was going to drown. So they have this skinny dipping scene that they have to do in water. And um, in order 
to get her to do that thing, they had to have a diver uh, down in the water with her, uh, is what I was told, and holding on to her so that she felt safe enough to do the thing. And, and you know, I, I don't remember there again, people, people who know Nat's history would probably know better than I about where that fear came from, but it, it sure came true because she drowned. That's how she died. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was so, so sad because evidently there was no ladder or anything on the boat for her to get back onto the boat. She either fell or something. I don't know. I think she fell because they said there were literally claw marks on the side of the boat where she was just frantic. And then her body was down, down, down on one of the beaches. So, I mean, she, it, it, it's, it's just so sad because she was one of the most beautiful creatures I had ever laid my eyes on. And she wore gardenia perfume while we were doing the film. I don't know if that was unusual for her or not, but you could smell her before you would see her. And then, I mean, you could see when, when men looked at her, they just melted. And and it was totally understandable. Those beautiful eyes and that skin. Her skin was there was not a mark on it. It was gorgeous, just satiny smooth. It, it was interesting getting getting to work with her. And I can imagine because you talk about um, beautiful people. I mean, you have her and Nat and Robert Redford and in the same movie. You know, so you're appealing to both sides. You know, of the audience. So yeah. to speak, you know, with with um, with good looks. Yeah, Redford is just so professional. He's so amazing to work with. Um, puts you at ease immediately. Um, would would you know run lines with me if I needed to run lines and and just a, a, a really really nice guy. Uh, Talking him a few years ago. I forget now what happened, whether I called him or he called me, I can't remember. But this, you know, a catch-up call. Uh, and it, it was just nice to, to hear his voice and and know that he was okay and I guess for him that I was okay. And When you work with people like that, it, it really makes a difference between uh, being able to continue and, and to enjoy things or not. Mm-hmm. Some of these actors who want to get moody and demanding and whatever, I mean, it just doesn't make any sense because you're just making it hard for everybody who's having to do it and you're always on time front. So if everybody can work well together and and try to get along and and do your thing professionally, then then you can enjoy it. Um, and but some people just I, I don't I don't understand that kind of mentality where people want to give people a hard time. That's just not I don't think that's the way to go about anything or a business. Yeah, some people um I guess lose lose track of what their their self worth is and and do different things. I mean it's hard to say what other people are thinking and doing. And I think it, it is. 
I, I don't understand that kind of mentality. But when some people get, you know, a lot of money and bottom line power, um, they kind of feel, I think, like they can get away with stuff and do whatever they want to do. And that's just not, that's not, that's not right. Um, and it creates a lot of problems for the guys down on the lower rung. Um, and they need to understand that because, you know, the guys on the lower rungs are the oil and the engine, the lighting people, the sound people, the, or if it's in a, in a regular business, the accountants, the salespeople, the, you know, people who clean the stores or whatever, they are the oil and the engine. And if you mess them over, you're, you're going to foul the engine. Mm-hmm. And it's not going to work very well. Um, it's the best analogy I can give. So it behooves everyone to be on point, ready to go, and and try and be as good natured as possible to make the load a little lighter for everybody. Oh, I agree. And um, they obviously this was a troubled production. Um, there was another movie you did that came out that same year um, with 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 such a happy title. Let's kill Uncle. <laughs> <laughs> one of the worst films ever made <laughs> but god we had a lot of fun making it bill castle was at a period in his life where he wanted to do something different um, he was known for horror pictures and he was he knew this was probably going to be one of his last films and he wanted to make it fun and when I first met Bill Castle, I was terrified of him. Uh, he was in an office at Universal. Uh, when they have these little cabins that are set out in people's offices or in those little cabins. I don't know if they still have it that way or not. I haven't been back in so many years. But his office was mahogany paneling, this huge mahogany desk leather chair, red leather couch, you know, the button-type couch. And he brought me in to meet me, and he's this big, huge guy, and he's behind this desk, and he's got this big cigar, and I just was terrified. And then uh, we talked for a bit, and and, uh, then he brought Pat in, and I met Pat Cardi. Come to find out, this guy is just a big teddy bear. I mean, he was a really nice guy. And just, you know, let Pat run riot with whatever he wanted to do. You guys want to dance, want to sing, you want to, you know, have fire, you want to have whatever, uh, you know, rain, you know, whatever you want to do. You just do, I want you to have a good time. Because word had already gotten back about what happened on property with me to the point that when I met him, he said, I want you to go home for the summer. You've had a really bad go. Now you go home, ride your horse, go out there and get some sunshine and just enjoy yourself, have fun and come back in the fall and we'll make this movie. And that's what we did. He gave me the courtesy to give me that break because word had already spread about what I had been through. It worked out great. And Pat Cardi, um, <laughs> he would take like photographs and make like little scripts and stuff. And 
Oh, it was so funny. Uh, he, he was just a riot. And uh, it's, it's funny because uh, just yesterday I got a, a text from somebody who had been talking with Pat. And I'm hoping that he's going to get in touch with me because I haven't talked with Pat in God, probably 15, 20 years. Uh, we we had so much fun and we had rain and we had fire and we had <laughs> tarantulas. <laughs> just everything. He just threw everything in there. Um, but uh, that's one that I haven't I haven't seen in forever, probably since it was made. Uh, but uh, the same guy who's in touch with Pat. Gary Ambler, who I met at the uh, convention there this week, uh, or last week, um, he he's gotten in touch with him, and I'm hoping that he's going to get in touch and call because um, it'd be nice to talk with him for again after all these years. Yeah, I've watched the movie. It's on YouTube, and um, oh, is it? It is, and uh, because it's, it's very, you can't find it anywhere else. I tried looking for it. I was like, oh. So I tried. Well, there's evidently CDs because Jer- uh, Jeremy has found uh, CDs uh, that he has purchased because we've got a show in Kentucky that we're going to do. Oh. And uh, so he found some that he has purchased so that we can take those to the show. And I'm looking forward to get my hands on one so that I can look at it, see what it is. Oh, well, it was, I, just what I can remember it was just terrible. Well, <laughs> it, it, I mean, I enjoyed it. It was, it was, it, it, it is it great? Is it, is it, well, let's put it's no To Kill a Mockingbird. <laughs> <laughs> Way far away from that one. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but it is an enjoyable watch because the, the humor is there. It, it's 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 a small cast. It moves. It's a I mean, if you if you enjoy William Castle movies, you're kind of expecting certain things. Of course, this one's not a horror movie like he would did with like the Tingler and the House on the Haunted Hill and those kind of things. But it's it, it has the you know, if you enjoy William Castle as a director, it has those touches there. And and, and Nigel Green is just. Chewing oh, the scenery as the villain. You just love him. <laughs> oh, yeah. He was so good. He was amazing. Uh, yeah. We we had a blast making that. I mean, we really did. It was a lot of fun. And one of the funny things that happened when they had the, the pool scene where I have to be in with the shark, there was a, a contraption of a mechanical piece of equipment that was down in the pool uh, and of course they had colored the water like blue really dark and then they had all this stuff floating on top of the water uh, because it was supposed to like be having been, been there for a long time or something I don't know but anyway they had this sin on the on the uh, track that was to go across the pool and they said, okay, now you, you come out the doors and you're going to jump in here and uh, you scream and scream and then we'll call cut. Okay. So 
I come busting out of the doors and I jump in the pool and I'm screaming and screaming and I'm screaming so much. And I look up and here's like the crew running towards me. <laughs> and I, I stopped screaming and I'm like, did you call cut? <laughs> and they were all just like, Oh, thank God. She's all right. They thought that I had gotten, in, you know, hooked up in this, contraption that was in the pool with me. <laughs> so, uh, but anyway. That's almost like you say, but Diaz, that's why it's called acting. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> the guys were just, I mean, they were ready to hit the pool, right? You know, <laughs> like if they made sure the thing was turned off. And, but, oh, it was, it, that was funny. I said, I didn't, I didn't hear cut. That's <laughs> okay. Get her out of the pool. Get her out of the pool. That's <laughs> okay. Okay. William Cass was probably holding his heart like, oh, jeez. Oh, yeah. I have no doubt because it was like a bicycle chain, you know, that was running in on these steel legs that went down to the bottom of the pool to run this thing. And they, they, felt like I wasn't anywhere close, but they they just didn't know what was going on. <laughs> for, for listeners that haven't seen this film, Let's Kill Uncle is about an uncle that wants to kill Pat Cardi's character because that's his nephew, so he can get the money. And you Don't and... Don't give um, everything away. Well, but, but this is in the trailer. This is in the trailer. Um, oh, okay. So I'm not giving anything that's not given in the trailer. <laughs> and and then you two decide to turn the tables and let's kill uncle. Actually, I think you came yeah, up, right. your character came up with the idea and you give such a look when you say it. It's just like, let's kill uncle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, it, you know, I, I think looking at it as a child and looking at it as a, an adult would be totally different. Like I said, I haven't seen it probably since it was made and didn't think much of it. Um, but then with kids, you know, it's like the scenes, any scene, I know what was going on in my head <laughs> when I was doing the scene. And then you look at it and you go, God, if I had the chance to do that again, it would be different, <laughs> you know? So anyway, it reminded me of like a seventies live action Disney film. It like it, it was oh, like okay. similar to that, you know. When and and you know, some of those are really good, and some of those are not as good. But to me, this is like like right in the middle, you know, where you enjoy it, you have some smiles, and as I said, Nigel Green just as 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 the villain. Yeah, his his, his facial expressions and stuff like that are just classic. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's a good kids' film. I think it's one that, you know, by today's standards, it's probably pretty rough. But um, I, I think there's nothing in there that would be too much for pretty much any age group. Would you agree with that? Oh, I'd agree. I mean, it's okay. at the very beginning, um, William Castle has a cameo as um pat carity's dad in the movie um as he as he yeah. dies in a car crash and you just see the car on fire you see some fake blood on his face and you see the car on fire and, that, and that's about as gory as it gets right so exactly. you can so get by that you're home free <laughs> right right i i think um 
you know, it's it's uh, my kind of uh, movie because there's no blood and guts. It's just it's very uh, entertaining. It's pure entertainment, slapstick stuff. So. Exactly. And I was happy that I watched it because it was just, I love those classic Disney films. Again, this isn't a Disney film, but it's, it reminds me of those. And I was just, I was just enjoying myself and I like William Castle. So, and to hear William Castle take care of you as a young actor to say, no, take, take a few months, you know, enjoy yourself. It's your childhood. And then let's do the film makes me feel so happy to know that he cared so much about the people that that were going to do these movies for him. That, that to me is, is a, is a, is a great story that you that you shared. Yeah, he was a great, great teddy bear. He was a, a real sweet guy and took very good care of his actors. <clears throat> now, I noticed in the thing, a lot, a lot of your films have some interesting things to do with um, single parents or parenting or, you know, um, uh, you're the character in Let's Kill Uncle. You have a, an unusual family situation also. One other thing I wanted to talk to with you about your career-wise is your Twilight Zone episode, The Bewitching Pool. Which oh, is yeah. The, which is the final episode, I believe, that aired for The Twilight Zone, if I read correctly. Yes, it was. It was It was the final one that they made. Um, and with that one, it's about some kids who uh, are from a very wealthy family, and uh, the parents get along like oil and water. I mean, they're just... It's like these children are something you do, you know, you have kids, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't, you know, we went through this Hollywood thing of everybody had to have the little dog and then you had to have all the little stuff. And then when these girls got older, then it was all that they had to have children and it was like something you do. And there were a lot of people who, you know, you get married, you have babies, and, and that's it. And and with this couple, uh, they just uh, fight all the time. Uh, and it's usually about the kids. And, and it's really sad because the kids just want to be loved, as any children do. Mm-hmm. Um, they... they um, spend a lot of their time out at the swimming pool just to stay away from the fights and the, and the alcoholic mother at home. So I think one of the best Twilight Zones ever written because it talks about the need for children to be loved and understood and to take care of each other and as brother and sister. With that one, I had uh, Timmy Stafford uh, as my co-star, and he was wonderful to work with. And it turned out to be, uh, you know, a really lovely, lovely piece, uh, I think. And we had um, Georgia Simmons, um, who played the old lady, Mm -hmm. who has all these children that nobody wants. Georgia Simmons, I didn't find this out till we were at the thing. She was born on June 13, 1884. So that's not makeup. That's her. <laughs> and and um, she was just 
the epitome of this sweet old lady who has all these wonderful children that nobody wants. And, oh, it, it was it was fun. It was great. But with with that, you know, it's I I like to to use that one for what not to do as a parent. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely it's definitely not not a how to, but a how not to. <laughs> how not to, right? Exactly. <laughs> and what can happen with too much money and the status climbing people or just um yeah. Yes, because some people do treat their children as possessions instead of right. raising them and being and, and loving them. It's just like, oh, we, we have children, and you know, and and, and that and that yeah. this move this, that this episode is so exact like that, and sadly, it's it's so true with so many families. Oh yeah, and especially during the fifties in the South, you know, the maids took care of the children. I mean that's. I was raised that way. We we had uh, Mrs. Beattie Harris and Mrs. Frankie McCall, uh, who, <clears throat> who took care of our household. I was really lucky because I had really loving parents, and um, Beattie and Frankie were just all giving, wonderful human beings, uh, and who raised us as their own. I mean, my going to church and everything. Frankie would take Tommy to to church. That was her baby, and she was one of the head ladies at her church, an African American church. And then I would go to church with Beatty, who raised me. That was my introduction uh, to to church, and and we would. She would hear my prayers at night when I was dismissed from the table at night. We sat formal dinner table at night, every night. And then I'd be dismissed from table and go upstairs. And Beatty would make sure I got ready for bed and said my prayers. That's the way we were raised. But not everyone was so lucky. I mean, there were some kids who never got to be with their parents. They they never really had any time to be with them. They had all this money, and they had this beautiful these beautiful homes, but absentee parents, and and it was so sad to see what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, these these children just ached just to be loved, and a lot of times the servants that were put in charge of them they could have cared less about these kids. It was a paycheck. Uh, they did what they had to do, but that was it. And if your parents are gone for six months to go, you know, off to Europe or off to Africa to go, you know, shoot elephants or whatever, that was just the way life was. And you've got your chauffeur, you've got your, you know, maids and that, and and just deal with it. And a lot of them were packed off to, you know, military schools for the boys and and prep schools for the for the not prep schools they were girl schools women's institutions not to become anything but to be intelligent enough to carry on a conversation with your husband's boss or whatever um it it, it just it, it was a different different time period and um very difficult 
for some some women. And luckily, by the time uh, I finished up with school, uh, you know, women were making their own way and uh, were getting the respect they finally deserved. Uh, in many instances, though, we're, we're still having to deal with it. The progress that I've seen for women's rights it has come such a long way. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness, such a long way. As we have seen with um, people of color, you know, that they are are now able to, to go to do anything. They can be anything. Uh, all it takes, and that's whether it's we're talking about women or people of color or whatever, today you have the ability to be and do anything you want to do. You want to be a doctor, a lawyer, whatever. You can do that. All it takes is a lot of hard work on your part and striving forward and keeping your goals in mind and keeping your nose to the grindstone. Um, and, and you can do it. And I, when I worked at the college, I used to have, you know, parents come to me and say, you know, stop encouraging my child to, to go to school. I don't have any money, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, don't worry about the money. There are people over there who will pay mm-hmm. for your kid, you know, that we can get scholarships. All I need from you is the psychological support and and getting your kid to be, you know, where he needs to be when he needs to be there. That's that's all I need from you. Just don't worry about the money. Um, we need your kid to, to keep going because they have better possibilities. But some parents, they don't want that, especially some of these single moms. You know, I would find that they want to keep the kids at home to do for them. And it's like, <laughs> your your kid is so intelligent. They can do so much more if they are, if they get their education. Um, so that was kind of a, a battle sometimes with some of the parents that I had. But to see a child go you know, as far as they want to, to to have the freedom to do, no matter what color they are or what sex they are, that they can do whatever they want to. All they got to do is show us the grades and they can do whatever they want to do and be whatever they want to be. That wasn't possible during my day. Mm-hmm. That was totally impossible. Well, I agree. And things have, things have made some strong progress and, and hopefully continue on. Um, yes. with that progress because uh, obviously if, once once you think every once you once you go stagnant once you think oh I've, we've we've achieved what we want to then it can right go, we can't get complacent yeah, exactly that, thank you. that's the word i was looking for complacent <laughs> yes you can't get complacent because we never came so close to going back to 1930 as we did recently um and and there are people still uh, who would like to take us back there. Uh, there's a lot of men that feel totally uh, that women should be back in the home and blah, 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 and all this stuff. Um, and, you know, people of color should go back to wherever they came from, blah, blah, blah. No matter that they were born here 
in the United States and they have no idea about their own their their country where their parents or their grandparents, whatever came from. What people the the ignorant part of that whole argument is we all came from somewhere else. <laughs> originally mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that's the, the the big part that they're leaving out basically we all came here from somewhere else back when and so that's the fault of uh you know the dumbing down of the school systems here in the U- united states uh in my my opinion where a lot of schools are not teaching history anymore. They're not teaching civics, so people don't know how their government runs. And this is critical. You have to know and be involved with your government. It may be very boring for some people, but but you've got to learn because otherwise there are people who will take advantage of that and take advantage of you, as we have seen, and be able to manipulate things back the way they were. Um, And I don't think any of us want to go back to that. My big thing is education, education, education. I can't say it enough. It's critically important. Our teachers have to fight for better teaching methods. They have to fight for better class sizes. They have to fight for not being held responsible for everything that goes through, uh, like most of the teachers I know, they not only have to be trying to teach, but they've got to be a lawyer. They've got to be a medic or nurse because they're giving medications to these children. They have to have, you know, Joey has to have pills at such and such a time, blah, blah, blah. You know, trying to keep up with state laws, and federal laws, and, and you know, some of these crazy teaching methods where a lot of our children don't know basic math anymore because it's all like ethereal, mm-hmm. not teaching children how to uh, write cursive. You know, yes, it takes more time to teach that, um, but without it, if a child can't sign their name, um, it puts them at a deep advantage. And I think about the family letters that we have in our family that are written in beautiful scripts that children today can't read that. I, I mean, I signed a, a, a little note to a child, um, and the child handed it to its mother and said, what does this say? I can't read it. Because they're not taught cursive anymore. I Really? It's I mean, why, why would you do that? It, it is. And, and, you know, everything, they want everything run by computers now, and that's just not happening. What happens if the grid goes down? What do you do? You know, I, but the main thing is the old letters were written in script that is gorgeous. And to be able to read those old letters, of people who lived way before us and their daily life to me is just fascinating what they went through. And to know that our children 
can't read those. And I found a box at the dump that was in an old chest that somebody was throwing away at the dump. And I took that chest and I put it in my truck and brought it home. And here are these incredible, incredible letters that the family members had traded back and forth during World War One that were going to be thrown away. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I, I, you know, it. I, I enjoy that kind of thing. I, I wish everybody did. I'll leave it that way. Well, I understand. And one thing I, one last thing I wanted to talk with you about was the new book that had Harper's Lee's name attached to it. Yeah. Um, Ghost at a Watchman. Yes. I've, I've never read it. I just had no desire to read it. I've read reviews about it. And, yeah. um, and to me, if you can explain to people how this book came about, because I know you've, you've done a lot more research into it. And, you know, because it's because obviously there's been a lot of flack because of the new book contradicting some of the things with the original book and, uh, and those kind of things. If you can explain to people how, why it came into existence. Yeah, basically the way that this book came into existence was that this was the first draft that the publisher rejected for the book that Harper Lee wanted to write. The, the publisher sent it back to Miss Nell and said, you know, you need to concentrate on the children. The story is in the children. So basically she had to start all over again. Mm-hmm. So she took that and set it aside and started writing again and honed it down to a family story that we know as To Kill a Mockingbird. I don't think Miss Nell ever wanted or expected this book to be published. I mean, I figure she might have thought that somewhere along the line after she died, somebody might find it and do something with it. But that's on them. But the, the real book, is To Kill a Mockingbird that came from that story of Ghosts at a Watchman. Now, what I will say about this is being I'm from the South and my dad was a businessman in the South. What you have to understand is that men of that time who did business needed wealthy, powerful men at their side. No matter that you did not believe the same way that they did, as my dad did not believe in the KKK, did not, he, he understood where they were coming from. And because of the social norms at the time, he had to entertain those men and take them out and play golf with them and had two of them on his board of directors and, and that sort of thing, even though he was not of the same belief. My father raised us. You take care of everybody. You give everybody a chance, no matter what their color or anything, until they give you a reason not to. And once you get to know that person, if they're not a nice person, then you can say, okay, I'm not going to have anything to do with that person anymore. But when you're in business, 
and you run in certain social circles and you need those people because they have products that you need to use for your business, you have to go along to get along. And my dad was a military man. He'd been in the military his whole entire life practically. So he understood that he had to get to know those people and he had to understand their belief system so that he could thereby work with them to help him get his products to market or whatever, you know, he was his feelings that he had to deal with. Having understood that, I can understand being a lawyer, especially a small town lawyer, you have to know everybody and you have to understand everybody. So Atticus going to KKK meetings, know thy enemy is one of the first rules in military. Mm -hmm. You understand them. You know who they are. You know what their beliefs are. You know, so if you're not stepping on toes that you don't want to step on. And also, too, that you can work within the guidelines of those rules and keep that person on your radar and your side, but not necessarily getting too close to them. Being a lawyer is a very, was a very difficult job back then because they handled uh, land transfers. They handled birth certificates and marriage certificates and, and all sorts of stuff, plus legal stuff uh, when people got into trouble. My great-great-grandfather was a lawyer in Arkansas. Mm -hmm. I think he was great-great. It may have been great-great-great. I'm not sure. But anyway, he handled a case like this of a black man falsely accused of raping a white woman, and he took the case. And he had the KKK ride up to his house and threaten to tar and feather him and burn his house to the ground. And back in those days, people rode horses. And horses were very individual. You could see a horse out in the field and you would say, oh, what is Joe's horse doing out in the field? Mm -hmm. So these guys ride up to his house. He called them by name. He knew who everybody was, no matter that they were hooded. He knew each and every man who was sitting on each and every horse. And he had helped most of them. So he calling them by name, you don't do that to the KKK. I mean, they got really upset. But what did granddaddy do? He did what Scout did on the steps by reminding them of their humanness and their connection. And the half of me went to church with. So you know, they rode away. They left him alone, as did the crowd with Scout. When she brought them, hey, Mr. Cunningham, I go to school with your boy. I go to school with Walter. That brings them back to being human beings again and understanding the love that we have to have for one another and the care we have to have for one another. That's important. Um, there's too much anger and bitterness and sadness that's being brought about by that kind of anger and bitterness and hatred. We have to love one another. Mm -hmm. 
um, you know, these people want to call themselves Christians. As Christians, look to Christ. What did he say? We have to take care of one another. We have to love one another. Lift them up. Feed them. Care for them, even though they are your enemy. And that's, that's why we're here on this earth is to take care of one another. And this is a tough old world right now. And we need to really reach out to one another and and do all that we can to lift each other up. That's it in a nutshell. <laughs> oh, I agree. And I'm just fascinated to find out that in your family history past, a story like that with your great-great-great-grandfather um, having a situation virtually the same as in To Kill a Mockingbird, and how he handled it is virtually the same as Scout did. That, that is, to me, it's just, um, what they call it, kismet. I mean, because yeah. obviously when you were a child, you didn't probably know anything about that until later on. I had no clue. I didn't find out until my dad, you know, wrote the family history. That's when I found out about it. And I took his book up to the text. I was going up there for dinner one night. And I had brought the copy of book with me and handed it to Alan Pakula. And he read it out for the people who were there for dinner. And it was Brock Peters and everybody else. They were just like, man, the hair on my arms was standing up. This is just too bizarre, you know. But I think it's come full circle for a reason. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're all put here for, for some reason. And, you know, hopefully I keep my listening ears on and, and can um, keep, keep doing what I'm supposed to be doing, I hope. I think that's all, any, all of us can do is just try not to judge people until after you know the person. And then, and then you have an idea what they're really like, you know, uh, and just go out there and try to give people the benefit of doubt to you know otherwise. I mean, it's, it's really, exactly. it's, it's, it's so simple. And, but it, but it seems to be so tough for some people. I don't know what it is. I was, I was, I've always been that way. And I know you've, you've been that way. I think it's the way we were raised and um, it's, it's to me, it's like a default mechanism. And yes, there are things out there, but you, that's why you might not be able to change everything, but you can at least control what your actions are and, and then teach your children and the people around you. And then maybe you have an impact on the greater community and it, you know, it, and it just basically branches out from there. Yeah. Because once you get to know, and I've traveled all over this world, man, I've, I've been around uh, to different countries and stuff. And I can tell you that most everybody, all they want is to take care of themselves and their families and to see their kids go on and be successful. That's what our job is as parents, is to help our children to stand on their own two feet and walk by themselves. It's not to hang on to them. It's to make them strong enough and have that central core of spirituality to where they can take care of themselves and Hopefully, if need be, one day take care of us when we get old and funny. But um, it, 
it's just that's our job as parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and and sometimes um, saying no to our kids is one of the most loving things we can do. And and a lot of people, you know, don't say no to your kids. Well, no, no is a good word. Um, you know, no all the time is not good, but but when you say I don't think this is a safe situation. Whenever I would have to say no to my kids, I would follow it up with, you know, no, because this, this, and this are the reasons why. Now, if you think something different, talk to me and we'll see. But my kids, my daughter was so funny one time because she wanted to do something. And I don't remember now what it was, but, I had to say no. And then I started to go into why. Um, I promised my kids I would never say no without explaining why I'm saying no. And my daughter throws up her hands and she goes, okay, mom, no lecture, never mind. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, sorry. But, you know, when I was a kid, it was no, and but why? Because I said so. Mm-hmm. Bottom line, end of story. That was it. You know, and I, I swore to myself, I can remember crying, holding on to the big tree out front and going, I will never do this to my kids. I will never do this to my kids. Um, because I don't think it's fair. I mean, children have feelings. Children have, and that was not understood for many years. If you look at your Victorian history, um, they didn't believe in touching and, and holding your kids and, and, and explaining things to them. That, part of that got totally uh, thrown out the window with, and I forget the doctor's name, who was purporting all this nonsense. It is critically important that you love your children, that you hold them, that you not only just make sure that they eat right and they eat enough or whatever, but that they know that they are loved mm-hmm. um, and and know that they that you care about what they do. And positive reinforcement, I, I can't say enough, you will get further with positive reinforcement that you ever will with a belt. And by belt, I mean, that's old terminology for what we used to get as kids for discipline. Uh, you got a choice between the belt, a switch, or a, a frat paddle in some cases. Um, and, and you know, my dad raised, I, there was six boys. That's, that's hard. That's hard. Um, and back in those days, it was corporal punishment mm-hmm. uh, was was what what you did. Um, I, I, my husband and I did not believe in corporal punishment. Um, and my daughter would end up having to sit on the step. And she would scream bloody murder. You would think the child was being beaten to death. Just because I told her. <laughs> You're in timeout, and you're going to sit there until I tell you you can get up. <laughs> like, but she would just wail. Oh my goodness, <laughs> it's so funny. But but when the time comes, 
where they do something really good or something really sweet, just praise them. Please praise them like crazy so that they know, oh, okay, if I do good things, I get praised. That's really important. Um, When they do their schoolwork, please participate. Get involved with your kids' school. That is critically, critically important. To know what your child is being taught when they're on the computer, know what they're looking at and help them through. Because I was helping my granddaughter through this COVID stuff with her her stuff and sat there in the room and was my mind was boggled uh, at, at what they were trying to teach them. And it's really hard. Now, luckily, she's really smart and she she gets it. And she'd get her little stuff done and and no sweat. And she'd finish before everybody else would. And she, you know, was able to take off and go outside. And we could go, you know, go on a slip and slide or go play ball out in the yard or whatever, uh, play with her dog. Um, but But she has that kind of support at home with my daughter that she knows. Uh, you know, mom's there for and and gives her uh, lots of praise uh, when she when she deserves it, which is ninety nine point nine percent of the time because she's a great kid. I don't know. Hope that helps somebody. <laughs> well, I, I think I think people that listen to your your my conversation, this interview, we started off with gardening. We started off with. You're going. You you're doing all these different things at the schools and education and parenthood, and we also talked about the movies. But I think it's just a matter. I know I know we're a movie podcast, but a lot of times I've had some great interviews with people where we discuss the movies, but we also discuss outside the movies, and I find that stuff to me a lot of times more interesting than the things we find out about some you know some of the inner workings of doing the movies itself, because everybody has a story. And I think it's so interesting to find out and take the time to listen and to learn those stories and then to put them down so other people can listen to them. And I'm not just talking about like movie people, but I think really everybody has special stories out there. They just don't realize it because they don't think themselves as being special. But that's right. And that's one of the things that I encourage with people is if your grandma is still alive, if your granddad is still alive, go talk to them, take a recorder and record their voices. Because I can tell you after a while, once they're gone, you're not going to be able to remember what their voice sounds like. Okay. And get their stories. Everybody, every family member has stories. Um, Some good, some bad, but that's your family history to write things down. That's where letters were so important because we're all so transient nowadays and we text and stuff, but those letters are just like gold to me. I just think they're wonderful because you get these wonderful stories. My dad was born in 1892. He was 60 years old when I was born. He grew up on horses. I mean, those stories of growing up and getting a carriage hooked up to go to church and go to school, riding the mule. I mean, that those 
you know, it's, it's priceless. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, kids now, their parents weren't that old, but their granddad might have been, their great-granddad, you know, and I'm sure those stories are known, some of the family stories are known by other members of the family. Collect those stories because they're fascinating how people survive like the depression. You know, my my dad took our family out of the city and they went to the farm during the depression. And Frankie kept our family alive um, because they said if you could eat it, Frankie would can it. And we always had something to eat. Mm-hmm. And there were families, whole families uh, with kids and stuff headed from the mountains into the cities to try and get work uh, so that they could survive. And they used to say of Mr. Badham's house that if you passed by there, you would not leave empty handed because Frankie would put, you know, a, a, a jar of fruit or something into their knapsack so that they would have something to eat or uh, a loaf of bread or that she had made or, you know, some cornbread or whatever, or some baked potatoes so that they would not go away from that house hungry. Um, those stories, that those are just amazing mm-hmm. um, and very uplifting what we can survive, how we can survive um, through hard times. But we have to work together as a team and I agree of with, humanity. I agree with you. And I think that's something we discussed about how society has become more insular. Yeah. With, with the way it's, it's, it's kind of so weird. We're, it, it's, it, we're having the easiest time of getting a hold of people ever in society. Mm-hmm. But yet we know less about people that are next to us, you know, it's, it's, it's and we're not helping them out. It's, it, it, to me, it's just such an interesting, yeah. interesting time. And I think it's, it's really get. Hopefully one day people will realize let's get back to the people that are around us. And then as, as you've brought up many times in this discussion, you know, interview with getting people to help out, help people out, whether it's through a church group, yeah. a nonprofit, um, I, I yeah. used to help out of the soup kitchen. I mean, there's there's there things you, you can do, you know, just to go out there and assist people and help them, and and, yeah. and that that can make the that can make all the difference in their life. You never know what that one little you never, act of kindness. You never can do. know. You know, everybody's got like a Boo Radley in their neighborhood, somebody who's a shut in who. Maybe they don't see very well anymore. Maybe they don't hear very well anymore. And they become afraid and they become shut in because they can't go out anymore. They're afraid of falling down or whatever. And, you know, they'll say, oh, that woman she's, that lives on the corner, she's a witch. I mean, look, the yard's all overgrown and blah, blah, blah. It's probably some sweet, dear old lady who desperately needs somebody to come in and see about her and take care of her, you know, and, and mow her yard and, and cut her bushes and make sure that she's got food in the cupboard. And, you know, that's, that's the way Miss Nell, who Miss Harper Lee was 
a good Methodist woman. And you see that in the book as you read through it. And I never knew anything about Methodists. I was raised basically a Presbyterian, but my girlfriend was Catholic, and I used to go to Catholic Mass, and I'm very ecumenical now. So, um, but anyway, the Methodists, um, the, my neighbors up the hill, uh, when we bought the farm, were Methodists. And they came down and invited us to church. And at that time, we didn't have a Presbyterian church. We didn't even know where one was. Um, so we went to church with them. And the Methodists really take care of one another. Mm-hmm. Um, when I lost my daughter, Catherine, um, seven months in utero, um, I called Gus Wright, our minister. And um, he met me at the hospital. And when I had Catherine, um, he gave a little memorial service. We invited the nurses and doctors who were able to come in to come into the room and and pray with us. And it was Thanksgiving. And my parents-in-law had driven down from Pennsylvania. And the ladies from the church had come over. They had cleaned my house. They had made their beds. They had a full Thanksgiving dinner ready for them. Um, they had my bed all set for when I came home from the hospital because I had just no ability to do anything. That, to me, was the most amazing gift that they could give. They took care of our family so beautifully. And that went for anybody that they heard of, that they knew about, any church members or non-church members who needed help, they were there. If if somebody had a, a, a limb come down in the yard, they would go and cut it up and, and take care of it. At the end of the year, we would have a big Brunswick stew where we had a huge pot that would sit out in the yard. And everybody would bring the left leavings of their freezers. From, the, from that season and bring it to put in the pot to make the Brunswick stew. And if somebody was in hospital, they would go visit them. They would take care of them uh, when they got home and make sure that when they were in hospital, their kids got to school and that they had meals and that they, I mean, to me, that's what church is, what it should be. It's not just going to church on Sunday. Knowing each other and taking care of one another. I mean, that's the basic teaching, I I think. Well, I, I agree with you. And I think most people that out there agree that, you know, help other people out, whether, whether you're a churchgoer or not, is, is irrelevant. Yeah, it doesn't matter if you go to church or not. It's, it's the thought that counts and it's the actions. And, and then you lead by actions with your children. They see what you do, and then they carry that on. They carry it forward. Karma, if you want to call it that, whatever. Oh, yeah, definitely. And um, Miss Madam, what are some things that you have coming up? Got a signing in uh, Kentucky. Uh, um, I forget now exactly where that is. Um, at one of the, I think it's a sci-fi convention, 
I think it's Louisville, Kentucky. And then I have another one. I've got a, 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 a gig in um, Tennessee, in Lewisburg, Tennessee. So, yeah, and then another one in Ohio. So I'm, I'm busy <laughs> <laughs> doing stuff. We're traveling before I have to travel. So, yeah, it's, um, it's, a, it's amazing how things are, are moving along, even, even with COVID. But I, I do hope everybody, please, 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 if you're not vaccinated, please go and get vaccinated. It's been approved by the FDA. Um, there's, it's, it's critically important to stop all these variants coming along. I'm a certified nursing assistant, and I'm also I've worked for Red Cross for a number of years. Uh, it's critically important that everybody get vaccinated and that you mask up even though you're vaccinated. Uh, some of these new variants have become so, so bad um, that even though you're vaccinated, you, you can still get it. Um, it won't be as bad, maybe, and hopefully it'll keep you out of the hospital. But just mask up, keep everybody safe. Make sure your kids mask up when they go to school. Um, I just want everybody to be safe and happy and healthy. And I think that's, that's the main thing. I hope everybody is too. And, um, Ms. Battle, thank you for taking the time out to talk to me, not once, but twice, to, to get everything <laughs> in. <laughs> well, thank you, and I, I hope this, um, everybody enjoys it and, and, and are thankful for all your hard work in making this happen because you've really gone above and beyond to try and get this program out to everybody. Well, it's like I said, I, I just want people to, that, that aren't able to travel or go to see you in person um, to get this way to get an idea of, of what it's like meeting with you and, and, and hearing you talk about different things. And I think that's that, that's my goal. You know, I don't try to make money. I don't make any money on this at all. I just do it for total pro bono. And it's just to let people have um, that chance to um, hear people, to get interesting yeah. stories. And we appreciate that. Thank you. That's that's a really good thing. Oh, you're welcome. And um, thank you. And listeners, I hope you enjoyed this. And feel free to share it with your friends and family. Um, there's a lot of, I think, good things in this interview that, that will definitely hit home, not just with movies, but like we said, with basically the human condition. And um, stay tuned next episode when we either be doing a movie review, an interview. And, but above all, be safe. And I hope everybody has a... Um, good time while they're being safe. Thank you. I can't see Atticus. Well, that changes things. Atticus! Hey, Atticus. Jim, go home and take Scout and Dill home with you. Son, I said go home. No, sir. Well, I'll send him home. Don't you touch him! Ain't nobody gonna do Jim that away. Now you get him out of here, Mr. Finch. Jim, I want you to please leave. No, sir. Jim. I tell you, I ain't going. Hey, Mr. Cunningham. I said, hey, Mr. Cunningham, how's your entanglement getting along? 
Don't you remember me, Mr. Cunningham? I'm Jean Louise Finch. You brought us some hickory nuts one early morning. Remember? We had a talk. I went and got my daddy to come out and thank you. I go to school with your boy. I go to school with Walter. He's a nice boy. Tell him hey for me, won't you? You know something, Mr. Cunningham? Entailments are bad. Entailments. I was just saying to Mr. Cunningham that entailments were bad, but not to worry. It takes a long time sometimes. What's the matter? I sure meant no harm, Mr. Cunningham. No harm taken, young lady. I'll tell Walter you said hey. Let's clear out of here. Let's go, boys. 